You're listening to Protocols in Action with Researched Nutritionals, hosted by founder and CEO, Dennis Schoen. Good afternoon, listeners. Thank you for joining us today. I am Dennis Schoen, and I am the founder and CEO of Researched Nutritionals. As the company is founded on developing targeted nutritional supplements and completing clinical research that is published in peer-reviewed journals, part of our company mission is to promote practitioner education with talented and creative practitioners, such as today's guest, Dr. Taylor Crick, who practices in central Illinois. Dr. Crick holds a doctorate from Palmer College of Chiropractic. He opened his first practice in Salt Lake City. And he soon became known as a functional medicine doctor who provides care for professional skiers, national champion weightlifters, and help thousands of people take control of their health. Dr. Crick's clinic was voted the best of Utah in alternative medicine. In 2018, Dr. Crick and his wife moved back to their native Illinois in order to be closer to family. Dr. Crick is an expert on lab interpretation, immunology, and metabolism and loves teaching his patients to understand and take control of their specific health challenges. His favorite symptoms to help are fatigue, anxiety, bloating, among others, but he also really loves very complex and puzzling cases. He is also the host of the very popular Autoimmune Doc podcast. Dr. Crick believes that with autoimmune challenges or any other health problem for that matter, when you can understand the mechanisms behind the why, why you have headaches, why you are tired. When you understand the mechanisms, the solutions become more obvious. Today's discussion uh, with Dr. Crick will focus on numerous roles of the mitochondria and the role they play in maintaining health, including energy creation, uh, numerous roles in immune support, cell signaling, apoptosis, Uh, and the ability to impact so many areas of the body, including metabolic syndrome and aging. He will share with our listeners how he evaluates and revitalizes mitochondrial function, including the labs he uses and nutritional support that is targeted to each patient. To our listeners, I want to let you know that we will have live Q&A following today's discussion, so feel free to send your questions in as you're listening during today's event. Welcome, Dr. Crick. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Dennis. Thank, thanks for having me. Well, it's a pleasure, and it's great to talk to a functional medicine practitioner such as yourself, who, as we were talking a little bit earlier, you spend usually a minimum of 75 to 90 minutes with a patient to really understand what's going on. You, you yeah, take yeah. that time to, to figure it out. Yeah, and, and sometimes we joke, you know, my initial intake is... 90 minutes and then there's an hour follow-up and but sometimes we joke that it's not till the third or fourth visit that we really start to crack the case so it's sometimes and i've heard it said too um if you listen to the patient long enough they'll tell you what's wrong with them so i think that spending that time and sometimes it just takes that amount of time to figure out some of these mechanisms well and also i imagine it takes time for the patient to really elucidate why or or the problems that they're having and when you hear all the different issues you can put it together yes or if somebody says you know i have fatigue and i say well that could be a mitochondrial issue and then i say here's a list of some of the others and they say oh my gosh i have that and that and that and that then all of a sudden they're starting to connect the dots that's like oh it's my mitochondria 
that are damaged or need supported or whatever the case may be. So uh, absolutely, I, I like spending the time with people. And, and I think that also a big part of what I do is education. So it's not like I'm just hearing their symptoms for an hour, but I'll, we'll talk and then I'll say, okay, let me tell you what that means to me. Or I'll show a lot of graphics. I show a lot of studies. I show a lot of research papers and just uh, sometimes just to, to educate people, but also to say, you don't have to take my word for it. Here's the study or here's the, the, the you know, other, you know, information that's out there saying how these dots connect and they say oh my gosh this is starting to make sense so like you said in the intro when you understand the mechanisms the solutions become a little bit more obvious so we spend a lot of time teaching and understanding these mechanisms well that's great and i'm sure your your patients certainly benefit by you spending the time and, and asking the right questions. So good yeah, for you, yeah. that's well, thank wonderful. You, thank you. Thanks, so thanks. we're gonna be talking about the mitochondria today as, um, as we mentioned. And so just if you could share a little bit with the listeners about the mitochondria, their importance, their role, which is obviously involved in energy, but even much more than energy. Yeah, uh, it's honestly, it's one of those questions. It's like, what do the mitochondria do? It's like everything. Or, uh, you know, there's a, a movie called Almost Famous, and he says, what do you love about music? He says, to begin with, everything. It's like, that's what mitochondria do. But it's, it's energy metabolism. So that's the energy to get up and get out of bed in the morning. And, you know, fatiguing issues are really common. I see quite a few of them. But there's also many things that mitochondria do that don't lead to fatigue. You know, they produce inflammatory cytokines, they produce reactive oxygen species, and uh, they, they're at blood sugar and insulin resistance and neurons, uh, neuron triggering. I think that's one of the biggest things that people don't associate with mitochondria is n neurons that are too easily triggered or fired. So causing neuropathy or pain syndromes or anxiety or dizziness, you know, is uh, the, the neurons in the vestibular system telling you that the room is moving when it's not. Or tinnitus is uh, telling you that there's a noise when there's not. Or fibromyalgia is sometimes telling you there's a pain when there's not anything there to be causing that. That's all mitochondria. And they also, too, Dennis, they're, I think that every, everything in the mitochondria, which is just an interesting is electrical. You know, they break down our food. We, our body breaks down our food into electrons and protons, and then those electrons are passed through the electron transport chain in the mitochondria and then outspits this energy. So I think that's just interesting in the context of our growing uh, non-native EMF fields that we're exposed to and some of the mechanisms of that being mitochondrial or even grounding, you know, many people are familiar with the benefits of grounding or being barefoot or connecting to the earth, and that's all mitochondrial. And then they also, too, kind of act as the antenna in our, in our cells and sense danger and sense other, you know, uh, cytokines and chemokines and kind of the internal milieu of the cell. They kind of sense that and, and then behave accordingly, you know, and in fact, there's a, a concept called the cell danger response. And it's published out of the journal Mitochondria, so it's all the mitochondria that sense that. But the author of that paper, he says that when cells go to war, they behave the way that nations do. They harden their borders and don't trust their neighbors. 
and they stop talking to each other. And so the mitochondria are what what do that, sense that danger and send and then send those signals out for the cell danger response. And those dangers too, just while I'm kind of rambling on it, I said all the things that we see in functional medicine practice and the outcomes of this cell danger response are also all the things we see in functional medicine practice. The gut microbiome gets disrupted, we get inflammation, we get autoimmunity, we get anxiety, we get neurotransmitter imbalances, we get depletion of cortisol. These are all direct quotes from these papers of the cell danger response, but the dangers are the things that we see in functional practice like Lyme or mold or viral infections or toxins are the things that are, are, are dangerous. And the mitochondria are kind of the antenna that, that sense that. It's interesting. I mean, you're really talking about how, I guess really how pervasive in overall health the mitochondria are. I mean, it, it, most people look at it from purely energy, and, and that's obviously a big part of it because without the mitochondria, we wouldn't have energy, but it's so much more important than that, just energy. Absolutely, and I think that, you know, if somebody comes in with chronic fatigue, then we, we know right off the bat their mitochondria are impaired, but what if somebody comes in with anxiety and insomnia, and they have too much energy, do they not have a mitochondrial issue? They absolutely have a mitochondrial issue. It's just not presenting in the same way. So there's almost no cases or, or people that mitochondria aren't involved with because they're the batteries that literally power all of our life. The question is, is that meeting mitochondrial support, is that your best next step for this particular person? But almost everybody needs mitochondrial support in some way, but... Um, there's a lot of nuance to how you do that, I guess. So when you're looking at your patients and going through the discovery process, are there certain labs or certain tests that you run that you find helpful in either confirming what you think might be going on or detecting something? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I do a little bit of every lab. So even, and again, a C-reactive protein, you could argue that there's mitochondrial parts of that, a hemoglobin A1C, cholesterol, you know, everything that we're measuring in the human body is by nature mitochondrial in some way because it powers our body. But to look specifically at that function, I use organic acids testing the, the most for that. There are other mitochondrial labs that are available. There's mitoswabs and some other, other you know, things that can be measured, but I use an organic acid. And I've really, throughout the years, I've, I've, I've dabbled with many different companies, but I'm really partial to Mosaics um, and, and formerly Great Plains Labs. And I've, I've spoken for them before and taught about how to utilize the organic acid test for, for chronic and complex patients. And so now I've run, I don't know if not a thousand, several hundred, we run over a hundred a year, but uh, now you get some expertise after looking at a, a high number of those to just see, is the mitochondria the priority? You know, sometimes people come in with fatigue and, and I don't support their mitochondria because if the labs show their gut's a wreck and they have a high toxic burden and they've got high pathogen burden or things like that, then I might aim at other things. So I don't just arbitrarily aim at mitochondria for everybody. But it could be justified that you that you could, um, but I don't with everybody. But going back to the organic acid and especially the mosaic one that I can speak the most to, it could tell us a little bit more 
about some of these specific mitochondrial functions. So even within the mitochondria, there's things like the electron transport chain and cytochrome C oxidase, which is a part of that, or CoQ10 or the Q cycle, which is a part of the electron transport chain. And that's one important piece of mitochondria. But if that's not somebody's missing piece, then CoQ10 might not be their missing nutrient. And if it's more glycolysis or aerobic glycolysis, anaerobic, then it might be more carnitine or some other uh, mitochondrial supporting things. Or if their problem is mitophagy, which again is really, that's hard to measure, it's hard to know, but PQQ or something might be more for mitochondrial biogenesis or mitophagy, or there's other, you know, mitochondrial supporting micronutrients that support these individual functions. So anyway, sometimes I'm using that lab to find the individual broken piece. Sometimes I'm using that lab to just see do you generally have a need for mitochondrial support? You know, if people come back with two, three, four mitochondrial markers abnormal, then I'm just going to say, hey, you need mitochondrial support, and let's start with something like, you know, ATP 360 that covers a lot of our bases and just support their mitochondria in general. But we can also kind of see some of those energy metabolism changes. And sometimes also, they don't show up on labs. You know, labs don't always show everything. So that's going back to my history and my questions and how somebody's responding or what's working or not working. Sometimes they don't, we don't see any mitochondrial issues on their labs, so we might not start in that direction. But based on their symptoms or their progression, we might say, okay, I think we need to support your mitochondria. In fact, I had somebody like that yesterday. She got a lot of neuro things. So mitochondria, she's had concussions, she's had toxic exposures, you know, just kind of a complex history. But her stool test that she had had before she met me was just loaded with pathogens. So our focus has been on that. But then yesterday during our conversation, she said, hey, this is improving and this is improving, but these things aren't improving. I, I get this hypoglycemia where I shake I wake up, she wake up in the middle of the night shivering or she, and she can't go very long without fuel. So she gets these hypoglycemic symptoms and she also has some insulin resistance on the other end. So we're just, I'm just kind of even drawing for her on a, on a whiteboard, on a Zoom call saying, this is fuel utilization. This is your mitochondria. I think your mitochondria are moving up on our radar of, of, of treatment steps. Um, and I think this is an important next thing to aim at. Well, no, that's great. I mean, again, the answer is not always the simple one. It's not the obvious <laughs> it, one. You know, in my office, it never is. And you even in my intro, it's like, Dr. Taylor loves complex patients, and I still do. But over the last few years, I'm attracting quite the complex crowd. And I'm kind of like, okay, I, I kind of miss the simpler days. <laughs> but, but I do love the complex, uh, you know, long COVID, mold toxicity, Lyme, just myriad of constellation of symptoms, let's say. I, I do enjoy those. It's interesting because, you know, we, <clears throat> excuse me, do talk to practitioners quite a bit. <clears throat> excuse me one second. <clears throat> and what we've heard from so many <clears throat> is that it's a lot more complicated treating patients now um, than it used to be. And, and so you're not dealing with an issue. You're dealing with a multitude of issues, and that's yes. what you're obviously finding as well. Yeah, yeah, and, and I, I completely agree with that. And it's not... Like, oh, we just got to fix your gut. 
even the, you know, I was telling you a story before we got on the air about the guy with the parasite. We're going to get rid of that parasite, and he's going to be better, and it's going to be easy. And I don't see that many of those. Uh, occasionally we do, but a lot of times it's more like the triage of what do we need to do first? What do we need to do second? What do we need to do third? Because we've got five things. We have to hit them all. But if we do them in the right order, then it can speed things up as far as the progress that we expect. Um, yeah. You know, it's interesting because you're working a lot with, um, it sounds like chronically ill patients or more complicated patients. And when you were in Utah, you were working with a lot of athletes or maybe even extreme athletes. And were you seeing that in either case that there may have been mitochondrial issues with, I mean, obviously both sets of patients? No, I wouldn't say then. But what's interesting is now in the long COVID era, I have several people who have been, you know, diagnosed at, at UCLA or at different, you know, they're members of long COVID clinics at different major universities and things, but high-level athletes. I, I, I'm starting to see that a little bit more. I've got a few that were, you know, extreme CrossFitters or ultra-marathoners or, you know, were uh, collegiate runners and things. So I don't know if there's a connection, but I think that the mitochondria you know, exercise can help and, and it helps. One of the things that I learned even in undergrad with mitochondria is that we just want flux through the motor, you know. So flux through your car's motor would be how many tanks of gas are you going through? Um, and that's probably worse on your car's motor. But for, for a human and for metabolism, the more flux we get through there, the more efficiently that motor works. And that's what, where exercise is really good for the mitochondria. Now, also, in the chronic fatigue world, a lot of people get kind of post-exertional malaise. So there's kind of paradoxical, you know, signs of that. But, but no, to answer your question, I wasn't seeing a lot of mitochondrial issues in that population in, in, in that, you know, time frame of my life either. It was more performance issues or, or you know, I did chiropractic at the time, so musculoskeletal issues or adrenal issues, you know, gut testing, things like that. But I wasn't seeing a lot of mitochondrial issues in that population. And I don't know, just as I'm thinking out loud now, Dennis, I don't know if the exercise was protective. You know, we know that exercise protects us against some mitochondrial long-term chronic degenerative diseases like diabetes, Alzheimer's, and just has a pro more of a, a protective effect. Um, but I, I don't know if that's the mechanism, but it is just protective. And I think that that probably is, is the flux through the mitochondria keeps those mitochondria healthier. Exercise also leads to increased mitochondrial numbers, mitochondrial biogenesis and, and, uh, more mitochondria, more batteries, and uh, the more the, you need more muscle power. Um, like a sprinter, an Olympic sprinter, will have a lot more mitochondria in their quadriceps than somebody who sits at a desk job or something, um, just from a sheer number standpoint. Right. You know, it's interesting because we work with um, some other practitioners who work with um, some of these, like, super marathoners. Um, mm -hmm. And so, I mean, these are people who are running a marathon every day for seven days, and you know, they're sort of beating the heck out of their bodies. Um, and we, we know breathing creates oxidative stress, right? I mean, that's the way it's supposed to be. Um, but it's this constant um, chronic, you know, chronic inflammation and oxidative stress that takes place sometimes with athletes that may send them off too, depending on what type of sport they're involved with. Absolutely. And especially, you know, from an overtraining standpoint, 
um, we do see that. Now, what's interesting, going back to the athletes, sometimes I will see, like I had this one person, he was an ultra marathoner, and he's back to where he's able to do, you know, 40-mile, 50-mile-an-hour bike rides and do longer things than, than many people, but I think he would want to get back to 18-hour races and stuff like that. But it's interesting when athletes will find that their fuel utilization has changed. So like this guy that I'm speaking of, he can go for a 40-mile bike ride just fine. But if he's got to crank up a hill and really put out some wattage and really get into that anaerobic. So sometimes we can see these signs, of, especially for an athlete, they're the only ones that really speak this language of when I switch from aerobic to anaerobic, I, I crash. And so then we have to explain that or try to think through what's going on with that from a lactic acidosis standpoint or from an anaerobic glycolysis standpoint but when i always liken it to a hybrid car if you have a car that can switch back and forth between gas and electric well if you're going on a thousand mile road trip you're going to be on electric but if you need more power to get off the line you might switch over to gas and if you can do that efficiently that's the value of that type of vehicle and the human body can do that efficiently too and so the fuel utilization from an exercise standpoint is really important. And then the other one would be if somebody goes hypoglycemic, which we were talking about, you know, some of those with the, my, my client from Norway yesterday. But she, if somebody can't go four hours without eating, that's fuel utilization. You've got fuel utilization issues you're not able to tap into. You know, your, your checking account might be depleted and you're not able to tap into your savings account. Um, and so that we want that fuel utilization, whether it be sprinting up a hill on a bike or it be trying to intermittent fast. I've seen people with known mitochondrial issues, diagnosed mitochondrial issues, who try to intermittent fast. I had a guy, he went 16 hours, he had to go home from work. For most people, that's nothing. Like, I don't even know that I would notice if I went 16 hours and I'm not bragging, I'm just saying it's just normal. But uh, for him, is like his whole brain shut down. And the brain fog was so severe that he had to go home that day. So that's just, again, just a sign of his mitochondria. So even if that, let's say on an organic acid test, let's say that nothing showed up. Well, if you have that sign or symptom, you got mitochondrial issues, and we're going to try to support those with mitochondrial things. And And honestly, what we did, he's... The guy that I'm talking about, he's the story that I've told you guys before where he said that ATP 360 is really helping me. I'm, I'm taking one a day. <laughs> that's the same guy. Um, and so that that's going to be my solution, or at least the first thing we try is, well, let's try supporting your mitochondria, and let's see if you can't go 16 hours without meals, or let's see if you can't go for a 30-mile you know, or 30-minute bike ride or jog or something like that. And obviously with that, especially with the chronic and complex patients and chronic fatigue syndrome and pacing your exertion. I never push that on anybody. I just say, you got to try it at some point and let's see how you do. And then with our consults, our follow-ups, it's saying, tell me, tell me what's working. Tell me what's not working. People say, I'm able to go 30 minutes. Um, but yeah, so that's how we do this trial and error. You know, we talk and we say, okay, what do we need to do? What are our focuses? And say, okay, let's try this protocol or this, these supplements at this dosage 
And then we follow up again a month later and I say, what's working, what's not working? And then we reformulate our plan and say, okay, here's what we're going to try next. And that's how we make kind of sustained progress with, with people. But all those things would be, would be signs of mitochondrial issues that I would, uh, would, would move that high in my list if somebody's unable to utilize, tap into their fat stores or unable to you know, go long times between, between eating. All those, to me, scream mitochondria. Right. Well, it's interesting because you know when you look at the whether they're chronic disease states or you know excessive exercise, um, you know we're creating all that oxidative stress, we're creating all that inflammation as we talked about that you know that increased cytokine activity, and it's interesting that both of those you know those two issues, cytokine function and um, and uh, reactive oxygen species. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Anyway. Oxidative stress or ROS. Uh, anyway, um, both of those damage the mitochondrial membranes. Yes, and, and they come from the mitochondria too. So it's kind of right. a vicious cycle and hijacked or damaged mitochondria. And I'll tell people this, and they're like, oh my gosh, that sounds like me. They'll produce <laughs> less energy, more inflammation, and more ROS. And then that in turn damages and uh, peroxidizes the membranes. And I, I think that even... You know, just as part of the formulation of, of, of you know, your product and things, especially ATP 360, that cell membrane and the, the, the replacing those lipids in the membrane, the internal uh, mitochondrial membrane and the external mitochondrial membrane, but replacing those lipids is a really important part, um, even with, uh, like, Garth Nicholson and the lipid replacement theory. Just talking about how these these lipids get damaged and oxidized. Now, I also think too, that's just well, again, I'm I'm rambling on it, but you know, we could do you could do tests for lipid peroxidation of the cell membranes, and you're usually looking at malondialdehyde or MDA. And I, I only like telling people that because I see so I see a lot of aldehyde issues, and aldehydes can come from cell membrane damage. Aldehydes can come from candida yeast or mold. Aldehydes can come from Alcohol, the alcohol gets converted to acetaldehyde. And then these toxins, these solvents, these aldehydes in damage mitochondria. They can store in the mitochondria and accumulate in the mitochondria, just continue driving this dysfunction. Or the last one, just with aldehydes, is my office that I'm sitting in, I had a big formaldehyde problem here. And it took me two years to figure it out and finally got a formaldehyde meter, and I thought it was mold and all these things, but it was from the carpet that we got. So it can be occupational or environmental, or it can be an endogenous source coming from yeast or mold or damaged cell membranes. But yeah, going back to what you said, the cytokines, the ROS, just damage, further damage the mitochondria. So it's a really vicious, can be a vicious cycle. Um, Yeah. When you are treating these patients, so tell me, I guess, I get from since you brought up the 360, what what makes you go for that? What other things are you looking for that you think are that I guess the formula has that are unique that really help your patients? Um, well, what makes me go for that? First off, I've tried many other brands. And I've told you guys many times that I love your products, but I always say Ford says they're better than Chevy says they're better than Toyota. Everybody makes good products, but you got to go test drive them. And I think that I've, I've test driven this. I'm, I'm obviously a big fan of the peer-reviewed research, but I, I tend to show that to patients more. To me, it's like what's working in real life. And so I, I just saw it. I felt like it was more effective for people. So I think that the formulation was the first thing that, you know, just uh, attracted me to it of, uh, you know, the typical things like 
I don't know, B vitamins, magnesium, and some of the micronutrients, micro minerals, things like that, or minerals, I should say, but uh, are, are in a lot of these different blends. But I think the membrane support, and there's just a few other pieces of the your formulation that just when I looked at the label, I thought, okay, this looks like a good formula. But then we then I tried it and and saw it helping people, and you know, it's one of those things that in functional medicine practice, if you get a few good reports from something you're going to keep using it more and more and more often. And so that's, t- that's how things get into my, uh, my tool belt and get more widely used. I'm open to trying new things. I try new things all the time. We carry like 500 plus items on our, in our, on our shelves. I point that way because I have a supplement store. Um, but which ones are heavy in my rotation is based on the things that have the most testimonials and success stories and people are noticing and stuff like that. So I think that's, that's what drew me to it. I think that I probably also, Dennis, from a company standpoint, and I'll be happy to, to, you know, tell you guys all the good things that I think about you, but it, it can't, you, first off, you were at a very reputable seminar was where I first heard about the company. And, and so then it was like, okay, this, this is something that I, you know, can get behind or just everybody else seemed like they were on board with it just in my industry. And then I looked at the formula and I thought, okay, this, this looks pretty awesome. And then it went to trial and error of trying it. There's been other mitochondrial supports or other just supplements where everybody, you know, from, from what you can see, sounds like it could be great. But then when I try them, people just don't notice that much. And then they fall out of my rotation. Uh, but it's the results combined with the formulation. But to go back to your question, I don't think there was any one specific, you know, piece of this as far as, you know, the membrane restore or the, I'm looking at the back of the label or the lipid concentrate or anything like that. It was just how it had a little bit of all those things, but it wasn't just the B vitamins and CoQ10 and, and, and selenium and, and vitamin E. It was the membrane support and, and some other factors like that as well. Well, no, it's interesting because when we started the company, there were two things we wanted to accomplish. One was to raise the bar on backing up products with research and getting it peer-reviewed published. But, but the other important thing, and this is really what matters from a patient standpoint, is getting patients better or making at least improving their health. Yes. And so rarely have I ever seen a single ingredient solve a problem. The body's so much more complex yeah. than that. Yeah, exactly. And the types of patients you're dealing with are even more complex. So, you know, the, the approach we use is the multiple mechanisms of action in every product that we have. So it's interesting, you know, we, yeah, we repair the mitochondrial membranes with that, but there's a lot of cytokine activity we talked about within the mitochondria, so we have an anti-inflammatory in there as well. And, you know, it showed a significant reduction and statistically significant reduction in TNF-alpha. Right, yeah. Okay. And I'll, I'll show that, you know, like your literature i'll show that to my patients and they're just because the graphs are just visually easy to understand and you see the reduction in fatigue and things like that they're like yep i want to try that um so it's an easy sell to get them to try it but um yeah anyway i think that that there's multiple mechanisms of action like you said and then also too you know just even you know i know your kind of purpose statement for the business and things like that was you saw a lot of people over promising and under delivering and, and I try to say in my practice, we try to under-promise and over-deliver. It's not even like, even though there's not one single ingredient, <clears throat> it's not like one product is likely going to change your life either. 
Right. But it's combined with these other things with cytokine activity or fixing the gut or reducing the toxin burden or all those things. But along the way, we want to see that we're nudging the needle. But it's probably not going to be the end-all, be-all miracle solution from one product. But this comprehensive approach absolutely can be. Right. And, and I think that's, that's important, and that's maybe why you're, you're seeing the benefits. I mean, we have a question from one of our practitioners asking in your practice if you're using that product, ATP 360, um, I mean, how long does it take? I'm, I'm sure it probably varies by patient, but that, that's what they're and, asking. You know, so if people ask that, I say that is the million-dollar question. <laughs> and because, you know, take for what? You know, to, to restore lab values or to make noticeable impact? You know, for some people, it, it's, it's a day or two for noticeable impact. Like, hey, I think I like that. For most people, I say, even if we're going to, you know, weigh our options, I say, let's get through a bottle and see how you feel. I had somebody yesterday where, you know, when she came into me, based on her signs, based on her symptoms, I said, you have mitochondrial issues, and I want you to start taking ATP 360. And then we ran labs, and so that takes, you know, maybe maybe took a month or six weeks for her to get them sent in and things like that. I think she, it took her a little while longer. And yesterday we were going through her labs, which had other issues, you know, gut issues and, and toxin burden and things like that. So we're kind of moving into that. And I, and I said, we still need to support your mitochondria, but I'm going to leave that one up to you. Our focus is now gut and toxin. And she said, no, I want to stay on that. So she, sometimes I let people decide and more often than not, they say, no, I think I want to stay on that. I think I feel a difference from that. I, I think that I'm noticing something. So that's the question is what are, what are, what's the expected outcome? And I'll tell people with this too, like, how do we know when your mitochondria are healed? You know, I, who, who's are perfect? Nobody's are perfect. Or they're, what does healed mean? Or same thing with your gut or, you know, your body has 400 trillion viruses. How do we know when we've knocked out enough of them? Well, if you're doing better or if we're aiming at a lab target, then a follow-up lab. Um, but the, the question of how long do you have to do it is a really, really big one, it kind of depends on how quickly somebody's getting better. You know, I have a lot of people that after a month of doing supplements, they're like, hey, I'm pretty happy with where I'm at. So, and I don't want to say they're not perfect, but they're just, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And their motivation isn't as high. And I have others where six months down the road, we might still be have a high need to work on things. So I just think that that varies so greatly by patient. And again, going back to those realistic expectations, the only time you're going to let somebody down, you know, I've heard it said like this, if you run a marathon with a friend and you're like, how's it going to be? They're like, it's going to be fine. You're going to hate that person at the end because <laughs> it's not fine. <laughs> but if somebody tells you, you know, it's going to be hard, your toenails might fall off, you might get blisters, but when you cross that finish line, you're going to feel such a sense of accomplishment. Then you're going in with realistic expectations. It's going to be hard. It's going to be long, but it's going to be worth it. And so I think the same thing with the patients is as long as you don't mislead them and say, hey, you know, by healing your mitochondria, we're going to fix your dementia or something, even because it's a mitochondrial issue. If you don't overpromise, then people are fine to put, to put the time in for that. But I would also say, too, if I get to a certain time frame, of let's say it's 60, 90 days or, or let's say two or three bottles of a product. And I'll say, do you feel like that's still nudging the needle? And if they say no, then I'm going to switch up. Sometimes just for the sake of switching up or getting something where they feel. So we'll give it a good concerted effort. We don't switch off of that as quickly. 
Um, but that's a really hard question to answer as far as the timeline or the dosaging or how aggressive, how aggressive do we need to be and for what time? Um, that's the million dollar question in functional medicine. Oh, well, I'm sure. And again, because every, every patient is different and they've come in with a multitude of issues and then it's just trying to sort of unpack it and yeah. decide it, where is it you're going to start. When so, if somebody, if we do an organic acid test and somebody has a lot of mitochondrial markers, then it makes me a lot more confident that mitochondrial support is probably going to be our solution. It's just a matter of at what dosage and what time frame and things like that. But if somebody comes in and they've got eight different problems, it's like, well, gosh, at some point we're going to see signs that your mitochondria are improving, but we've got to check off this or check off that. Um, but it is just pretty different for everybody. Our goal with any, everybody is do it as fast as possible. <laughs> um, but budget and compliance and just, you know, burnout and then just healing takes time. I mean, just, you know, if you've been exposed to toxins for 30 years, you're not going to remove those in, in 30 days. Um, but it doesn't take as long on the reverse end as it does on the front end. You know, if you've been exposed to toxins for 30 years, it might take six months to see great results or something. It's not nowhere near as long as 30 years, but it's also not not that quick either. Right, right. So I hope I answered that question, even though I dodged it a little bit. But it's just a, <laughs> it's just a, I don't know, custom for every single person. I would say. Sure. One of the doctors is asking, since you brought up, um, you know, mycotoxins, are you using glutathione at all to Ooh. help with that? And I use, in the words of Dr. Ann Corson, I heard her say this one time, I use copious amounts of glutathione. <laughs> so <laughs> we use a lot of glutathione. We love glutathione. We use copious amounts of glutathione. And even for me personally, glutathione has been a part of my, my journey with mold and other things, even, you know, sinus wise and stuff. Um, but yes, we use a boatload of glutathione. Um, yeah. And, and try fortify even my last. So I'll tell you about my last person that I was just with right before this podcast met her last year. Have not followed up with her that often, which is, you know, we leave it, we, we don't want people to slip through the cracks, but we also ask people, how, when do you want to follow up again? We kind of let them determine their, their motivation. But she said, I'm light years better than I was when I met you. And what we did last spring when I met her, we did some tests, we did organic acid tests, we did gut tests, we did gut protocol. But she has these insane sensitivities to airborne toxins, but also airborne gluten. She's a chef. And she works in a nursing home and they make 600 meals a day. So there's like flour and things. And she has, she wears a respirator and a hazmat suit. But anyway, as we talked today, I said, I think our focus needs to shift out of gut healing and leaky gut. You've got this airborne loss of tolerance because she said she also gets it around perfumes and cooking fumes and other top airborne toxins. And so we started on some liver support and a binder and try fortify glutathione. Um, and though, and we just try to keep it simple with those three things, a liver support, try fortify and a binder, um, just to keep things simple. But anyway, that, that I use it all the time for tolerance, for toxins, um, for, you know, all those things, I guess. Yeah. I really use glutathione for a little bit of everything. We call it liquid gold, <laughs> and we have, we have so many people that, I have so many people that, you know, like, I, maybe I saw them for the first time two or three years ago, but they still, they're like, I think I want to stay on that one, um, and so they might stay on it, and they might not use it every single day, 365 days a year, but they're like, I want to keep that one around, 
for if I'm starting to feel run down or if I get an infection or if I, for me, if I get sinus issues, I'll take glutathione and it will, it's, it's, it's pretty quickly helps those. Glutathione is the master protector of our barriers. Most people don't know this, but our sinuses and lungs have more glutathione per cell than any cell. They also do more cytochrome P450 activity than any cells, including the liver, because they're our frontline defense against these toxins. The liver as an organ does the most detox because it's big and it's just got a lot of cells, but these cells of our barriers have more glutathione and more cytochrome P450 activity. So I'm a big fan of, of glutathione. Well, yeah, that's, that's interesting. Um, I know that there's been a lot of discussion with people if they have oxygen, you know, thirst and that type of thing too, that, you know, we, we've heard that glutathione certainly helps with that. Yeah. And, yeah. And I've seen that as well. And there's, you know, there's different mechanisms for that, but there's, there's clearly a mitochondrial component to that just with the other constellation of symptoms that that often comes with. But it's, it's interesting. And even going back to oxygen, you know, I saw somebody yesterday and he's, 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 he's doing great. His mom said he hasn't done this great in a long time. He has a mitochondrial issue. It's genetic. He's nonverbal and he's not autistic, it's, but it's in that kind of category. But they go to Colorado to ski every year. And she says, last year he did horribly. And so I said, okay, this is what I think of with that. Is the elevation and the lack of oxygen is impairing the mitochondria. And so I said, <coughs> he's been doing well on glutathione. And I said, as you approach this trip, you might just try doubling that up just in hopes that this trip doesn't flare him or tank him or he has a seizure or things like that. But it's sometimes hard to predict those things. But if it, every time you go up in elevation, you get a symptom change, then I'm thinking, okay, oxygen, mitochondria. And it's the same concept with a hyperbaric oxygen therapy. It's kind of like a supercharger to a car or turbo. I always get them mixed up. But it forces more oxygen into the mitochondria, which creates more combustion and then can, can help um, heal the mitochondria through, you know, hyperbaric that's used often in mold, lime, heavy metals, head traumas, things like that. Um, but, but yeah, I do think that elevation and oxygen and oxygen requirements or that air hunger, things like that are just quite, quite interesting. It's interesting. I was, uh, one of the times I was skiing, I was at a high altitude and I never have altitude illness or whatever that a lot of people get, but I remember being amazingly sore afterwards that day. Exactly. And, and so I thought, you know, I've never tried this, but there was a, um, an oct a, a hyperbaric chamber, you know, that was nearby, a portable one. So I uh -huh. thought, let's give this a try. So I went in there for like 45 or 60 minutes. Amazing. I really? mean, pumping that much oxygen. And when I came out of there, literally no pain. Absolutely yeah. zero pain in that short period of time. It's, yeah, it's, that's super cool. I've never done one personally. They don't really have them in my area. And I've looked into buying one and stuff, but I don't have any experience with hyperbaric. A lot of my people that I see do, you know, especially if they're in larger, more popular population dense areas, or some of my people have, have purchased them and bought them. Uh, but it's it's quite interesting. But I've never I've never done it. Wow, yeah. There's again, there's so many different ways of approaching it, and I think again, your ability to um, to treat patients and really spend the time and and figure out the puzzle. That's what makes you great at what you do and probably makes it why your patients keep coming back. Yeah, well, I, I thank you, and I, I, I hope so it is. I think that is true, but I hate to say, yeah, that is true. I, and pat my <laughs> own back, but I, I, I mean, we have a, 
you know, we don't do a lot of marketing. We have a referral-based practice. And even from the education that I put out on my Instagram and podcasts and things like that, that's what attracts people to our office is, is just the education of this connects to this, connects to this, connects to this. So the action steps are that we just need to address this and this and this, and we should see results. And, and so just explaining the logic of that and the mechanisms behind that. And then, again, the expectations of, you know, this isn't good to say that everything's going to be rainbows and sunshine, but giving people realistic expectations for where they're at. I do think that most people are really, really happy with our care and happy with our approach and things, but it is this comprehensive um, approach. And then even, you know, showing people, again, graphics of like, this is what a healthy mitochondria needs. It needs oxygen. So if you live at the top of Pikes Peak, that's going to be a problem. Or if you're anemic, that's going to be a problem. Or if you have Raynaud's or some autoimmunity impairing your blood flow, that's going to be a problem as well, or, or even other you know, signs or symptoms of that. It needs steady fuel. So it, that's blood sugar if you need to eat more regularly, or are you able to tap into those backup fuel sources or you know, transition into ketosis or things like that so that the mitochondria can use ketones for fuel, but that it, your mitochondria need steady fuel source. They need stimulation. And then lastly, what are the things that uncouple the mitochondria? And it's inflammation, autoimmunity, and environmental toxins. And that's, I'll often tell people, Toxins are toxic because they damage the mitochondria. So if you take cyanide, it's going to shut down your mitochondria immediately and you're going to die. If you take mercury or lead or glyphosate or mycotoxins, it's going to shut down your mitochondria slowly over time and you're going to die slowly. But they're both toxic because they're impacting the mitochondria. That is, and there's other mechanisms, but it's mostly that's the mechanism. Wonderful. Well, we have a, a couple questions. Um, so one of the questions is, um, I took the 360 product when I had Lyme. I was taking many other supplements. It was difficult to know for sure. But I feel this one made a big difference. It seemed if I missed a couple of days, I didn't feel as well. I don't have any symptoms of Lyme anymore, but I've been thinking about taking this again. Can I take this without actually knowing if my mitochondrial needs improving right now? Would there be a reason it wouldn't be recommended? Not that I know of. That might, you might know more than me, but I, I would absolutely try that. I think that even if it's just for the trial and error, and, you know, like you said, you, you don't need maybe the full protocol that you were on that was sometimes hard to know what nudged the needle. But if you're doing better now and you just want to do some trial and error, there's no harm in taking mitochondrial support for the rest of your life that, that, that I know of as far as even the doses and things like that. Um, and, it, you know, just again, the diseases of chronic aging, are all mitochondria. So there's no harm or risk uh, taking this long term that, that I'm aware of, Dennis. You've maybe seen more more with that, but I don't, I, just even looking at the formulation and stuff, I don't think there would be even from a, yeah, from a B vitamin sample or anything. There, yeah. Uh, so do you, would you think so? I think there's no harm and I think it's worth a shot and I think you should try it. And then just see, like you said, the person who asked the question, just maybe do a week on and then do a week off and see is this nudging the needle? Right. And then my other thing too, which might not be for this question, for this caller, but you know, Dennis, I've told you this, that if, let's say you take, you know, the recommended three a day, and if you don't feel like it's nudging the needle, I would up it. And that might not be something you need to sustain, but just to see, does it nudge the needle? Uh, sometimes the, the recommended dosages of a supplement 
aren't aren't doing it. Now, I told you even before one of my mentors, Dan Kalish, uh, I haven't done a lot of Dan Kalish stuff. A lot of functional medicine people do. He's got a great educator, a great great you know teacher and stuff. But at a seminar I was at one time, he said mitochondrial supports work as long as you don't underdose them. Right. So right. I do think that if for that person, if you know three wasn't, do you feel like it wasn't nudging a needle and you did a week on and then you did a week off? He said, I feel about the same. I would up it to maybe two twice a day or just try some other, you know, dosage and I would feel comfortable recommending that. Now, obviously, whoever's asking can uh, do their own, you know, trial and error and, and work with a practitioner if you're not a practitioner, but I think it's safe to increase that dosage just to get a yes, no, maybe so kind of answer out of it um, and just see if it is nudging the needle. Because then I would say, for me, if somebody increased the dosage, and let's say they were taking, I don't know, I don't want to say any dosages that I would use, but let's say that three twice a day, and they didn't feel like they anything was happening, then I would not have them buy another bottle. Right. So sometimes we're trying to figure out what's working so that we can figure out the next step. You know, if it's February, then we're figuring out what we need to do in March. And if it's not working, then we're not going to keep doing it. But there's a lot of just experimentation to be had. And it also sounds like from that story, it sounds like it was helping. But how can you confirm that with being on fewer things? We'll just do a one single supplement trial and error period and see what, what's helping or working. Yeah, it's interesting. We have a lot of doctors, I, I guess, in the healthy aging area who are using it. Oh, yeah, yeah, good. Yeah, and I mean, I think it's one of those things because we, we know what's damaged the mitochondrial membranes, like you were talking about, with inflammation or the ROS or oxidative stress. And so if we have ways that we can reduce that and, you know, there's clinicals on it, um, why not do it as their approach to it? And, you know, again, I mean, one product we know doesn't work for everybody, but we are hearing a lot of positive things, you know, with, in, in that group of patients as well. Yeah, and I, that's, again, that's just not my world that I live in. But I, I, to me, I don't know if the limit exists. So if you, you could do it for the next year, you could do it for the next five years, you can do it till the day you die. And I don't think that you'd be overdoing it because your mitochondria are always going to be exposed to damaging things, whether it's radiation or toxins or cytokines or foods or whatever the case, viruses, whatever the case may be. You're not gonna, we don't sell plastic bubbles. So you're always going to be exposed to things that damage the mitochondria. Right. So that would make sense to do it even for long term just for healthy aging, even in the absence of any symptoms, the absence of any fatigue or neurosymptoms, just for healthy aging. I think it's, it would make a lot of sense. Sure. Same, with, same with glutathione, I think, as, as well. The dosage might, and, and it might vary and things like that. You might not always need high doses or it might be maintenance or it might be times of flares or things like that. I do, I do question a little more long-term antioxidants because we've got this balance of oxidants and antioxidants and messing with redox, uh, I don't know, worries me a little bit. But I've seen great success from glutathione long-term. A lot of people take it long-term. I'm just a little more leery with redox balance. But I think those two things make sense for just wanting to live longer and, and, and live more healthfully, you know, add years to your life and life to your years. I think both of those make a lot of sense. Sure. There are a couple of questions that are related, and these are from practitioners, about the order in which you're treating patients. So um, the, these questions are related to dealing with patients with mycotoxin illness. Yes. And, um, and they're using mycopole, which is our um, uh, binder, binder really yeah. for, for mycotoxins. 
And anyway, the question though is, should they have the patients start Mycopole right away or should they wait until the mitochondrial health is restored first? I don't know. And I don't, I don't again know that like, the hard question is, how do you know when the mitochondrial health is restored? But for me, a lot of times ATP 360 is one of the first things that I use after the history, before we have any labs. Let's say a labs take a, a month to get back and get it sent in and things like that. So for that month, what are we doing? Well, a lot of times we're targeting symptoms from the history, the symptoms that are clinical presentations. And if somebody's you know, easily triggered by trivial stimuli, or easily fatigued from stimulation, whether it be exercise or it be crowds or flashing lights or computer screens, or if somebody's got a lot of neuroinflammation, then I might start with Cytoquel and ATP 360. And then when the labs get back, then I might put them on a binder. You know, even if I, even if we can presume that there's mycotoxins, which a lot of times we can from a history, I wait until the labs come back and then I put them on a binder because usually we're either as kind of a next step, I'm either killing things in the gut, like candida or SIBO or things like that, and then I'm using a binder for that, or I'm trying to reduce mycotoxins or toxic load, and I'm using a binder for that. So a binder is almost always part of my, my second phase. The question is, when does the ATP, you know, do those overlap? And I think in a lot of cases, those, those overlap. But like the person I was mentioning yesterday, I know some of these stories blend together, but we just got her labs back. We ordered them in December. So it's been a, six weeks since we ordered them. And she's been on ATP 360 and she really likes it. But now we're moving into detox, binders, killing things. I forget exactly what we did. But I kind of left it up to her and said, do you want to stay on this? Because from a budget standpoint, some people just don't want to be on eight things at once. Right. Or or some people say, that's nothing. My last practitioner had me on 15. This is nothing for me. So some people are completely open to being on eight things at once. But a lot of times I'll let them answer that question themselves. Because if we've started it in month one, then I'm saying, do you think, do you think it's helping? And just more often than not, they say, yes, I want to stay on it. Unless it's kind of crowding their budget or things like that. Or we might, sometimes I'll discontinue something for a month or two months while we're focusing on something else. And then I'll bring it back. Or if we, you know, if their mitochondrial symptoms aren't improving, then I might say, okay, well, let's go back on, on that. But I don't have really like a, this is first grade, this is second grade, this is third grade, and we've got to go through these in, in order. Um, and it that gets hard to talk about like how I use protocols and stuff because it's really is, I hate to say this a million times, but it's really customized and personalized based on all those individual factors of, you know, if somebody's getting supplement fatigue or if somebody's, you know, budget just doesn't account for that or if so, if we feel like something's not working or somebody's at a plateau and we want to nudge the needle in a positive direction. Um, but I don't have like, oh, I support the mitochondria for two months and then I do a binder. It's a little bit of both. And I think that also just going back to the mitochondria and hyperbaric, one of the things that hyperbaric, when it speeds up that mitochondrial flux, it spits out more toxins. So you can see that on like some, some urine mycotoxin tests or like real-time well, real moves has shown some of these where when somebody starts hyperbaric, their toxins go up and then they come down because they're pushing more of them out. So I think that mitochondrial health and detoxification are, are hard to be separated. Um, but I don't have like, I do one and then the other. A lot of times there's a lot, there's overlap. I, I'll often do glutathione and binders together 
but AGP's not always with uh, either of those, or not always with a binder, but a lot of times it is. Yeah, one of the other practitioners mentioned something similar to that too, as far as, you know, I, I'll do a lot of these together. Another, another practitioner said that um, I often treat the biggest problem first. Um, exactly. Because if I can move the needle with that patient, so if it's fatigue, okay, I'll deal with fatigue first. Then I'll go in for the mycotoxins or whatever else it might be. Exactly. And it, I'm being serious. I don't want to sound facetious, but it's a, if somebody if we nudge the needle in the first month, people are all in. You know, they're hooked or they're like, I know, I know that we're doing something. Something right. is working. You know, and so if we can get people to feel that, you know, one of the things I hate in functional medicine is like. Oh, it's just a herx. Like you're, you're getting worse, and it's like, oh, it's just you're detoxing, you're herxing. It's just kind of an excuse for a lack of progress. And it's not. I'm not saying it's not factual, but we should see signs that we're that we're moving in the right direction, or see signs that we're nudging the needle in in some some capacity. That's really really important to me. Um, but yeah, it is really sometimes hard to tell also. But that's also where the where follow up comes in and and things like that to say what's working. What's not working? What can we explain from this? And how can we change our approach um, to make continued progress? Right, right. Another question from um, another practitioner is, um, actually there are a couple questions on this, relating to what a normal dose of glutathione is and what do you consider a high dose? Um, well, I will sometimes reference a, a, a published paper in a study that says a thousand milligrams of liposomal glutathione four times a day. And I tell people that's high. And I say that that'd be hard to even sustain from a budget standpoint. You'd just be flying through the bottles pretty quickly. But I do think that that is high. And I do think that sometimes high doses are necessary. But just again, from the problem with that, there's all these things that I keep in mind that might not always be the right answer, but they're just things that I keep in mind is if somebody's going through a bottle every two weeks, it's just hard to keep them stocked on that. It's hard to keep the enough. And, and a lot of people don't want to buy three bottles at the beginning and then have those just for the first month. So I'll try to make the bottles last a while, but also try to be effective. So if somebody has a lab value that indicates a need for glutathione or high levels of toxins or mycotoxins, I, I would dose try fortify it two to three times a day. And I'll tell them, and I'll write that on their write-up. I'll say, I, I don't say has to be two, three times a day, has to be three times a day. I say, experiment with this. And then when we talk, they'll say, you know, I tried that two times a day, and I think it, I think it helped me more than one time a day. So, well, good. How, let's, let's try three. And just kind of experiment and, and play around. But I'll use a lot of times, I'll use the recommended doses that's on your label because that's what people get home, and they're like, how much am I supposed to take? So I'll have people take the recommended dosage. I just might have them take it two or three times a day. And my understanding, too, is glutathione and the absorption and things like that, and it's better to take it in divided doses than in one big bolus at the beginning or end of the day. So that's what I'll do is I'll use the 5 mLs, but I might do it two, three times a day. And I might do sometimes, like with TriFortify, I might do for the first bottle two times a day. So that's going to last 24 days. And then I might just say, hey, after this bottle, let's go down to one time a day and make it last a little bit longer. And then they're like, yeah, that, I, I like that too. That sounds good. But we're front loading. I will front load antioxidants and use some higher doses. For me personally, I, I had glutathione 
uh, and I was taking a, a, a very, 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 very high dose, and it was noticeable for me, much more noticeable. So, and I use the metaphor a lot. We don't want to shoot a bear with a BB gun. You know, it's the right weapon, but it's the wrong caliber, and it's not going to do anything. So sometimes you need to just boost that up, but that shouldn't be a forever thing. So I'll do it again, you know, five mLs two, three times a day, which is, uh, I got it here, 450 milligrams, um, two to three times a day. Sure, sure. Uh, there's another question regarding um, a patient who is who doesn't sweat, and they, the, they want to know. It's a good one. Yeah, how does how does it affect the process of actually detoxing the mycotoxins? Well, I have a lot to say about that. First off, it does, but it's also just a sign that they're toxic, and that will one hundred percent change. That 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 will change um, through detox. Through you know, sometimes those people that don't sweat, if you put them in a sauna, they 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 get anxiety, they get panic. That it's not always a good idea, but those sweat patterns will change. I have one client in in Florida. His wife, actually, they, he, she's one of the ones I was thinking of as we were talking. She has a hyperbaric chamber. She's really knowledgeable. She's a practitioner. And I can always see it in the background of her Zoom calls. She's super sharp. But her husband, he didn't sweat. He lives in Florida, so it's hot all the time. But he didn't, doesn't sweat. Then he saw some other practitioner, and they started you know, supporting his adrenals and his gut health and just kind of some, I don't say basic things, but important things, but kind of basic things. And he started sweating. Then something happened with that practitioner where they didn't keep up the communication or something happened where he fell through the cracks and he stopped seeing him, stopped taking the supplements. Sweat went away again. Then when he and I started, sweat started again. So I see that all the time. I had one person one time, he sat in a sauna, not my sauna, but he sat in a sauna for 90 minutes with a ski coat on and he didn't sweat. Oh, my gosh. And it's just like, okay, so and, and the metaphor that I use for that is imagine if we pull the fire alarm in a, in a, in a restaurant and only three of the four doors are open. You know, there's only a few ways we can get rid of toxins. We breathe them out, we pee them out, we poop them out, we sweat them out. And so if only three of those doors are open, then you're just not getting the people out as efficiently. So we open up that fourth door and all of a sudden things are happening. Now, I can't say that it's like, oh, every time I use Trifortifier, every time I use ATP 360, that turns sweat back on. But as we just lower somebody's toxin burden, three months down the road, there's a great chance that their sweat's going to change. Glutathione is also another thing that people will notice their sweat change or their odors change. A lot of people, their significant other will notice it, and they're like, you stink. Like, you're <laughs> you're flushing something out through your body odor and through your bowels, and they just smell different. And then that will go away as we're reducing toxin burden. So I think that both of those are just interesting. But if somebody comes to me and they're like, I don't sweat, immediately, just in the context of like gut and food sensitivities or toxins, immediately I'm going, Voop, toxins. But then I'm also, you know, using labs to not just jump to my biases, but we're, I'm always moving around and, and doing, you know, musical chairs with the, my differentials of what's the top priority and things are always shifting and changing. But that's one of the symptoms that makes me think toxins, toxins, toxins. Right, right. Well, wonderful. I, I think we're out of time. I, I, I want to thank you, Dr. Crick, for taking the time to speak to our, your fellow practitioners yeah. on the line. And well, I know we, we kind of predicted this, Dennis, but I could, I could keep going for another <laughs> couple hours. I mean, we're just hitting our, hitting our stride now. <laughs> yeah, that's it has been fun. It's been great. And I, I mean, I love the, the topic, of course, and love just talking about the application of the products and love telling the stories and stuff. So I appreciate the opportunity. I appreciate you guys having, having me on. 
Well, again, it's our pleasure, and thanks for sharing your expertise. Have a great evening. Absolutely. You too. All right. Bye-bye.